Why don't you go ahead and turn to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2, we'll be looking at the letter to Thyatira, verses 18 through 29. Revelation 2, 18 through 29. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she, has refused, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart. And I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold to this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. That the one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, And he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Well, this week, an article appeared on The Blaze, noting a conversation with Harvard emeritus law professor Alan Dershowitz. Here's a couple quotes from Dershowitz. He says this, Let me put it very clearly. You have no constitutional right to endanger the public and spread the disease, even if you disagree. You have no right not to be vaccinated. You have no right not to wear a mask. You have no right to open up your business. He continued, if you refuse to be vaccinated for a contagious disease, the state has the power to literally take you to a doctor's office and plunge a needle into your arm. He went on to make another of other comments talking about how it's within the police power of the Constitution to force these things, to compel obedience. And he says there's even case, cases at the Supreme Court. Now, I'm sure in an audience like this, I read that, and there are two very different reactions. Some who might fall into vaxxers camp or some anti-vaxxers. Rest assured, I'm not going to discuss that today. But I bring up this reaction that we all have. Because it highlights that we all instinctively have a reaction to information. We instinctively move one way or the other. And one of the best explanations I've heard for this is uh, by Jonathan Haidt in his book, The Righteous Mind. And he argues that most people are not actually as rational as they think they are. See, most of us in the West, we tend to think that we're incredibly rational. That we basically just the facts, man. Give me the facts and I'll, I'll work through. That we research an issue. We weigh the facts. And then we come to the most objective position. And we all believe what we believe because we have done that work. Well, Jonathan Haidt says that's not at all the way that people actually make decisions and come to conclusions. He uses an illustration and he says that the way that people actually come about making decisions is with this picture of an elephant and a rider. He says when an elephant and a rider move about 90% of the work is the elephant. The elephant does what he wants. I mean, he's too big to turn. It's not like a horse where you can just pull on him. 
No, he's going to go where he wants to go. And he says the only 10% that we do really like truly pure rationally is the more long-term stuff where we're looking down the road and considering things. And then he goes and says, but even that 10% that we get is still because we're looking at other elephants and we're, we're still learning in that way. So while we may think that we're masters of rationality, that we're logic choppers, in reality, something like 90% of what we think and do and the conclusions we come to are based on intuition, on gut feelings. And those gut feelings were formed by other elephants, by, by other people we trust, by those who had this particular intuition and gut feeling and have nudged us and, and, and moved us this way. Because how best to move an elephant? You get another elephant that wants to go just a little bit to the right, and he just nudges him. The first elephant trusts him, and so he willingly moves and changes course. That's how actually most of our thinking is done. There are many books written on this topic, but it's a fascinating one to think about. When intuitions, gut reactions, actually form most of our thinking on particular topics. Now, maybe you're wondering what that has to do with the letter to Thyatira, and I'll explain that in a minute. But first, let me introduce this letter to you. Thyatira is in many ways like a carbon copy of Pergamum. Now, for, I'd say kids, but maybe for those of you millennials as well who have never written a check nor never will write a check, a carbon copy is where you would write on the top page and the exact imprint would go on the bottom page. So these two letters are dealing with the exact same undergirding issue, which is the issues of sexual immorality and food sacrifice to idols. You saw those same things. And so even though there's different terms used, whereas in the first letter we had Balaam and the Nicolaitans, and here we're talking about Jezebel, the teaching, the undergirding issue is the same. <clears throat> so they're, they're dealing with these identical issues, essentially. But there's two kind of minor differences. Whereas in Pergamum, we were dealing with a city where your very life could be in danger. Remember, we, we spoke of the man who lost his life, Antipas, my faithful witness. He died for his faith. Well, in Thyatira, it was a city of trade guilds. We would think of like labor unions today. We read about Lydia in Acts, and she was a seller of purple from Thyatira. The idea is she probably was part of one of these trade guilds. And so here, it's probably not as much of an issue of, of attacking the person's type of persecution, but maybe their livelihood. They weren't paying their dues, and their dues were to go to these feasts to get involved in this, in this false pagan worship. So that's the one difference here. The second difference would be this. Is it those, uh, as we've said, that the teachings were talking about Balaam, whereas here the issue was not that there was a group of people holding to the teachings of Balaam or the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Here, there's one antagonist. There's a prominent woman who has put herself up as a prophetess, and she is actively leading people astray. And so she's a false teacher in their midst. And that is why I opened with the discussion about how we really come to our decisions. That 90% of our decisions really come about because we have been influenced based off of our feelings of trust for other people who are moving in that particular direction. Because we'll consider in a little while, how does a false teacher actually influence people? Particularly in a church whose works and love and faith and service and patient endurance are praised by the exalted Christ. So we'll consider that as we walk through this letter. But the main idea of the letter is very simple. It is this. The church must stop tolerating this false teacher. That, that's the central piece of the letter. The church is called on by the risen Lord to stop tolerating the false teacher. But we'll walk through uh, this letter in these three points here. So we have the words of the son in verses 18 and 19. We have the toleration of the woman in verses 20 through 23. And the rest of the church. So the words of the son, the toleration of the woman, and the rest of the church.
Look at verse 18 and 19 with me again. <clears throat> and to the angel of the church of Thyatira write, the words of the son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. What a commendation from the risen Lord. So many things we could pull out from this. We've, we've talked about how the descriptions of Jesus at the beginning of these letters uh, will play out. And I'll, I'll highlight some of those things as we go on in the letter. But this is the only place in the book of Revelation where Jesus is called the Son of God. And it's likely because the prime deity, the prime uh, God that was worshipped there in Thyatira was Apollo, who was son of Zeus or son of the God of the gods, as it were. So Jesus introduces himself to this church and he says, the true son of God, the real son of God. Moreover, he's described as one with the eyes like a flame of fire and having feet like burnished bronze. The, the picture is that he is the son of God who is the judge who, who sees all reality and he will judge their works as he's going to go on to say. He's the divine judge, the true son. Now the burnished bronze is interesting. Like I said, Thyatira was a city of, of trade guilds and they made military brass. Uh, that was what they were famous for it. And so Tom Schreiner notes in his commentary that Jesus stands there with a metal far superior on his feet, his feet of burnished bronze. So Jesus stands as the righteous judge, the only true son of God. And he stands opposed to their cultural practices and false worship. And yet, he commends this church. I mean, look at that commendation again for their love, for their works and love and faith and service and patient endurance. And they're continuing to grow. Their later works are greater than their first works. So it has been said that every church must be shaped by the two greats, the great commission, go make disciples, and the great commandments, love God and love others. And in many ways, this church is thriving in these areas. Their works, their love, their faith, their service, their endurance. This is a church that is greatly commended, and it's a wonderful thing to see. And yet there's a twist of irony here. Because one of the things they're commended for is love. And yet, love requires more than just acceptance. See, we live in a day and an age that basically says love means you love me as I am. You accept me as I am. No holds bar, no questions. You just love me. Love is love. Love is without bounds, without borders, without definitions. And yet I would say I don't believe that that is love. Not in any meaningful sense. I mean, the definition of marital love is that you covenant to that person drawing a circle around you and casting everything outside of that circle. There's a love that is just for those people alone. So you could say true love requires a border. It requires a boundary. It requires to be protected. True love must include these things. And in particular, God will say in his word that true love is to obey Jesus. It says, if you love me, you will obey me. Notice the circle that Jesus draws around love. True love is obedience to him. So the irony is this, that in Thyatira, they're growing in their love, and yet they have a deep hole in their love because they are tolerating false teaching. To tolerate false teaching is to not love fully. It is to allow people to be led astray. Think of it this way. Their love is failing in three ways. In one sense, they're refusing to care for those who are going astray because it says she's actively leading people astray. You're not loving someone if you lead them astray or you allow them to be led astray and you don't warn them. It'd be like a parent with a small child playing by the road and you don't warn them, you don't put a fence around them, you don't guard them, you don't even pay attention. 
you're risking that child's life. This church was risking these people's souls because they were not ultimately loving them. Second, it's unloving to the people who are actively caught up and then teaching this stuff because they're leading others astray. They'll be judged for that. So true love requires you to go after them, to seek to correct them. And finally, it's unloving towards Jesus because it allows people to claim his name, to claim to represent him, and yet misrepresent him, lie about him. And this is why every local church has membership and should, offer, uh, should exercise church discipline. That's what they are designed to do, to protect the name of Jesus and to protect those members, to say, wait a minute, you're going beyond the bounds. True love is to obey Jesus. When Jesus commands, we obey. And when you see people moving outside of that, you seek to draw them back. So the irony is that they're so loving that in a sense they've redefined what love is and thereby allowed a false teacher to come into their midst. And that brings us to the second point, the toleration of the woman. Look at verses 20 through 23. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches the mind and heart. And I will give to each of you according to your works. Now this reference from Jezebel, as with the one from Balaam last week, is drawing from the Old Testament. Jezebel was wife of King Ahab, one of Israel's worst kings. And she introduced Israel to the idolatrous worship of the Canaanite Baal. So it's a, it's a fitting illustration here. Because this woman is leading these people into false worship. Now notice, Jesus says he himself had passed judgment on her. It's done. He's he's stated his judgment's coming. Apparently he'd given her time to repent, and she'd refused to do so. And so Jesus is going to throw her onto a sickbed. Now here's another little play on words here. Did you catch the point? That she's committing adultery with these people, spiritual adultery. So he says, look, if if you want to bed down with false gods, then I'm going to cast you onto a bed. And it's going to be a sickbed. It's going to be a bed of suffering. Now, there's some disagreement among the commentators about, it says, those who commit adultery with her, it seems like there's a chance for them that they'll be thrown into great tribulation if they don't repent. But then there's this other group potentially called her children, and that her children will be judged, uh, uh, they'll be killed. And so the question is, are there two groups there or just one? And the commentators go back and forth. I lean towards the fact that there's probably two that you have one group of people that she has actively seduced and they're her children. And so they're going to be judged just like her. They've gone too far as it were. Uh, And then there's another group where she's actively seducing them and yet there's still a chance for them to repent and turn. Uh, But either way, notice what the point is this, is that God's going to strike her and her children dead. And then it says this, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart and will give to each according to their works. This goes back to his eyes like a flame of fire, right? That he sees everything. He knows what pure worship is. And I'm reminded of Hebrews, verses 4, 12 through 13, speaking about the word of God as the Bible. It says this, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from its sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eye of him to whom we must give account. The church practically, I would just ask you this is when you're reading your Bible, 
there's two ways to approach it. On the one way, it's just, you know, this is a good thing that Christians do. So I did that today. But there's another way to read your Bible, like Hebrews 4, 12 and 13 are talking about here, where you allow it to pierce. You allow it to cut away. You allow it to lay bare those areas of your life. So friends, I would just ask, how are you approaching this, approaching listening to God? We believe this is God's word. He speaks to us through his word. Do we approach it as something, this is just, I'm glad I did that today? Are we approaching it seeing our deep need for it to lay us bare again, to expose us, to cut away the deadness in us? I would encourage you, don't ever make devotions private in the sense that you don't talk about them. Uh, private devotions are almost completely unhelpful in the sense that uh, you, you can fall into this habit of just like, oh great, I had my time. Don't get me wrong. I read the Bible privately. I encourage you to do it, but share it with others. Share it with family or friends or triad or community group. Talk about how the word is reworking you, how it's changing you, how it's cutting away, how it's exposing. So that's one thing. A second point here, it's interesting, is it says that all the churches will know. Did you catch what's being said there? When Jesus judges all the churches will know. So let me put it a little bit more pointed. When God's judgment falls on false believers and false teachers, it strengthens the church because it causes them to know more about God, that he is omniscient and he's perfect in justice. Now, as soon as I say that God's people are strengthened by God's judgment, some people get really uncomfortable. I mean, give me a minute to explain because this brings to mind these ideas of like, you know, the, the, the movie who says that God's like a mean kid on an anthill with a magnifying glass, you know, so he can destroy the, 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 the insects. But actually, I need to say something that's going to make this even a little bit more uncomfortable before I fix it. Is that God's judgment upon the wicked will ultimately result in his people worshiping and praising him. Now, again, I know how that sounds. So just listen for a minute. This, this image of Jezebel here is very important in the structure of the book of Revelation as a whole. Because in chapters 17 and 18 of Revelation, we're going to be introduced to another woman. It's the harlot city of Babylon. And these two interpret each other. So to really understand what's going on with Jezebel, you have to understand a little bit about what's going on with the harlot city in 17 and 18. Actually, turn to Revelation 18, if you would. We'll look at it in a second. But to give you context, in Revelation 17 and 18, at 17, you're introduced to Mystery Babylon. And she's pictured as a woman who rides the beast and her sole aim is to gain followers, to drag people away from the worship of the land and get them to worship the dragon. And in a part of her doing that, it says that she is drunk with the blood of the saints. So she's persecuting the church. And so that's what you see in 17 is this picture of her and, and all the devastation she's writing and she's, she's bringing about. And then in 18, you get three laments back to back to back. And it's the laments of the kings and the merchants and the people of the earth. And they're lamenting over the fall of Babylon, they're crushed because she has fallen. And it says, because they had committed adulteries with her and she's fallen. And so after these laments, right after these laments, Revelation 18, verse 20, notice what it says. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. Did you see the basis, the ground of their worship is Judgment. Moreover, that's a command. Rejoice. That's not a statement. That's a command. He's commanding them to rejoice. Flip the page and go to Revelation 19. I opened with this, but this is in the same context. And I just cut off verse two. I didn't read the whole thing. So after this, 19, one and two, I heard 
what seemed to be a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his saints. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah, the smoke from her goes up forever and ever, and they go on worshiping. Friends, the just judgment of God will result in the worship of God's people. And I know how that sounds, but this is actually something that I believe you already intuitively know, that you instinctively know that's the way it should be. Let me show it to you this way. Last week I used Little Mermaid, so we'll use Little Mermaid again. Regardless of all the worldview problems with Little Mermaid, Ursula in Little Mermaid is just the embodiment of evil. She is just horrible. She takes advantage of the young mermaid so that way she can convince her, so she can use her as a tool to wield her against her own father, so she can take his power and make herself the queen of the sea. And so when Prince Eric spins the wheel and drives the ship right into Ursula, killing her, none of you ever go, Eric is a jerk. I hate that guy. Why would he do that? That's horrible. No, you would never do that. No, you rejoice because justice has been done. Because true evil has been vanquished. Friends, you intuitively know that when true justice is meted out, the only proper response is praise. That's why David could sing about this in Psalm 139, 21 and 22. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with a complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Friend, you already intuitively know that it is a wonderful thing when justice is done. So the church will know. The church will be strengthened when God brings about judgment on false teachers. But that brings about us back to what we started with. How do false teachers have such sway? See, if I list some names, we're going to have, just like we did with vaccinations and not, we're going to have similar sorts of reactions. If I say names like Bill Johnson, Benny Hinn, Todd White, Kenneth Copeland, Joyce Meyer, many others, some because of the elephants in their lives who have, who have pushed them this way, are going to say, I just don't get it. I think those people are deceptive. They're, they're lying to people. And others might be like, oh, I just don't think they're that bad. I mean, you know, let's eat the meat, spit out the bones. What elephants have shaped you? Where, where have you been nudged in these areas? Where does your intuition go? And then we have to ask the question, could our intuition be wrong? Is it possible that our intuition about some of these ministries and these people is a problem? See, many will say they'll see some of these types of ministries and like, well, look at all the fruit. I mean, even though there's a lot of problems, I mean, there's some fruit. There's some good that's coming out of it. I mean, look at the devotion. I mean, yeah, I know it was written by this person and there's some really cheesy stuff in there, but it's also really encouraging. For some reason, there's this assumption that false teachers will always be ugly and unpersuasive and unsuccessful. That they'll be like the orcs on the Lord of the Rings. Like as soon as you see them, like that's evil incarnate. Um, But clearly not because Jezebel is obviously convincing many people in a church that Jesus himself is commending. The whole point of Jezebel here in Revelation 17 and 18 and the discussion of harlot Babylon and the laments sung over her is that she deceived countless people. See, false teachers do not win people because their arguments are so ridiculously off the, uh, off the charts that it's just out of touch. Now, most false teachers have statements of faith that many of us would be okay with, or at least most of it. They love to use their Bibles. They seem like a friendly elephant. 
And they grow their ministries through worship bands and songs and devotionals or picture-perfect smiles or success or any other number of things. And countless unsuspecting people intuitively come to trust them because that worship song really ministers to me. Or that devotional just speaks to me. And they intuitively begin to trust them. And they're moved 5 degrees, 10 degrees, 15, 20 degrees off, of course. And if that continues, they're going to find their destination isn't actually the new Jerusalem after all. Maybe think of it this way. Christians are rightly repulsed by the idea of, of supporting abortion. We, we hate the idea of our taxes going to it or any, any way of funding it in any way whatsoever because it's destruction of life. Well, friends, I really would encourage you to prayerfully consider the ministries that you might be supporting, which are not just destroying life, but souls eternally. To realize that we might be funding elephants, pushing other people away from Jesus. Because Jesus has called to this church is do not tolerate Jezebel. Do not tolerate, do not put up with false teaching. Do we have ears to hear? He would say to us. Well, that brings us to our last point. The rest of the church in verses 24 through 29. But to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, you have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan. To you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear. Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now again, some commentators here have noted that there's a possibility that the way that Jezebel was teaching was saying, I'm going to teach you the deep things of God. See, there's a way to be a Christian and then also to imbibe some of these other things, some of these areas of false teaching. Because remember, it was bound up with the trade guilds. So the only way to live and work in that city and to have commerce in that city, so to provide for your own family, was to also pay your dues. And paying your dues was to be involved in their feasts and in their practices and their pagan worship. And so perhaps that her shtick was, I'll show you the deep things of God. I know immature believers can't get involved in these things, but mature believers, we can take it. We're okay. We can imbibe those. It's okay. That way we can still thrive in the city. And then maybe that's what she was calling it. And so Jesus turns the tables and says, for those of you who have not learned the deep things of Satan, because that's what they really are. Remember, this book paints everything in black and white terms. And Jesus says that for those of you who have not done that, I put no other burden on you. Now that's a phrase which would echo in our mind back to Acts 15. So in the book of Acts, you have this movement where the church is mostly Jewish, almost entirely Jewish. And then all of a sudden, uh, Gentiles start trickling in, starting in chapter 8 with Ethiopian and then later in chapter 10 with Cornelius. And it starts to grow. And the question is, do the Gentiles have to do all these practices? Do the Gentiles have to do the cleanliness laws and all this type of stuff? And they're not coming into the temple. So how does that work? And so the Jerusalem council is called in Acts 15. And what they say is, we desire to set no other burden on you, but this. Do not eat meat sacrificed to idols or things with blood. And so you get that same idea here. Jesus is like, I'm not asking too much. Stay away from false worship. Stay away from that. That's what I'm saying. No other burden. I'm not having you jump through hoops. Do not worship other gods. And so that's the, exhort, the exhortation for all Christians. 
that though our hearts are prone to wander, that we are called to have no other burden on us, but that we just avoid false worship. Now that sounds so easy, does it not? And yet, as John Calvin rightly says, the human heart is an idol factory. It is constantly producing and creating idols, constantly creating and producing more ways for us to worship anything other than Jesus. We're constantly manufacturing things to build our lives around. And that's why to each of these letters, it says to the one who conquers, to the one who overcomes these false worships. See, even good and necessary things can replace our trust in Jesus. They can become the thing we build our life around. If I don't have this, then my life will fall apart. So friends, let me ask you, are there certain things, certain people, certain jobs, certain house, certain neighborhood? What are those things in your life that if you lost them, you feel that all hope would be lost? See, we can so subtly shift our trust in Jesus to these other things. And this is why Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. See, what are those things? What are those non-negotiables in your life? See, friends, wherever we have a non-negotiable, that is the point of our Christian walk that is the most weak, the most vulnerable. Because anything that's non-negotiable other than Jesus is a competing idol, potentially. Now, many of them are really good things. My marriage is non-negotiable. My parenting is non-negotiable. But you can still allow those things to subvert and overcome even your love for Christ. So friends, where are your treasures? Then he goes on, says, to the rest of the church, that is to those who overcome. Jesus promises a very interesting thing. Did you catch it? The two things he promises? To give them authority, to rule with a rod of iron, to smash pots. What is going on here? Well, verse 27 says, even as he has received authority from my father. So the point is, those who overcome will be co-heirs with Christ, co-rulers with Christ. That, that is actually strengthened by that imagery of the second thing he promises, which is the morning star. I will give them the morning star. Well, see, the morning star comes to us again from Numbers and the prophecy of Balaam. Uh, he was trying to curse Israel, but he curses Moab instead. And he says, he saw a vision of the Almighty. And then he says these words in his prophecy, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob and a scepter shall rise out of Israel and it shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down the sons of Sheth. Which is to say that Jesus is the morning star. So the promise of this letter to those who conquer, to those who overcome, to those who do not fall to false worship, to false gods, the ultimate reward is Jesus. That is why Revelation twenty two sixteen, Jesus himself will say, I am the root and descendant of David, the bright and morning star. Beale notes another fascinating thing about this morning star. Morning star, it was Venus, typically. And it was a symbol in the ancient world of sovereignty. And especially in Rome. Roman emperors claimed that they had descended from Venus, which is why they should be worshipped, the goddess of Venus. And Roman generals built temples dedicated to the star. And the, the sign they carried on their standards was this star, the Roman legions. So Jesus is pictured as the true morning star. He is the true sovereign. He is the only true son of God. He is the one with the eyes of flame and he's able to see what our true treasures are. And for those who overcome all the temptations of the world, 
for those who overcome the allure of the false teaching and false worship, Jesus says, you get the gift of me. So friend, maybe you're not a Christian and you're watching today and you don't know what it looks like for Jesus to be your treasure. I would love to speak with you. Please call the church and we can set up a time to talk. But for those of us who are Christians, the revelation that Jesus is the morning star, that he is the gift, asks the simple question, is he what we're living for? Is Jesus our real hope? Is he what we're looking forward to as our ultimate reward? See, I'm sure that during this time, many of you have done like I have, and Lord, come quickly. We're we're wore out. We want things to get back to normal. And we know even normal is not normal because that's not our home. We want to be free of sickness and death and isolation. And so we pray, even so, come Lord Jesus. But friends, when we pray that prayer, and we should pray that prayer, is what we're longing for really him? Because for those who overcome, Jesus is the reward. He is the gift. And in this, we also find the greatest of all paradoxes. Because Jesus became a man, as Dan prayed earlier, he is Emmanuel, he is God with us. He became incarnate and he lived a perfect life and he died a sinner's death to win a reward. And his reward was the bride. He worked and lived perfectly and died for his bride. And now he calls us to rest in his finished work. And by resting in what he's done, we are overcomers and we receive the reward, which is him. So he does all the work and we rest in it. What a wonderful reality that is and what a wonderful savior we have. So friends, I hope that you will rest in him even more this week. Would you pray with me?